Welcome to Dose of Support. We are an interdisciplinary show that highlights healthcare workers. We share stories and self-care in healthcare every week. I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner and a healthcare worker just like you. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider. Our guests are not your healthcare provider, and we're not giving healthcare advice here. Seek out care from your own healthcare provider. This podcast, host, guests, and associated social media platforms are not representing an employer or organization. It's hard out there, so let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned. Hello, doses. I'm coming to you on a night when my baby is actually sleeping right now, and I'm going to keep my voice down while I record this because you just never know. We did have our sleep consult, and we're doing some sleep training and following a certain schedule that they gave us, and so far, like, the jury's still out. I don't know. I've been up a lot, and I've taken a lot of naps during the day. Let's just say that. But part of that could have been the vaccine, because I got the second vaccine earlier last week, and I'm really excited. I But I did go down for the count for about 48 hours. You know, at part of that, I felt like I had, like, a full-blown flu. So prepare for that when you get your vaccine, um, but still better than COVID. Still so happy. Super grateful. I wanted to let you guys know that I have some plans for Valentine's Day with my better half, like truly a way better person than me. Um, I'm going to take my husband to get his first pedicure. He agreed to it. Like I, I, I was like, would you even want to do this? And he was like, pretty much like, I'll try it. Like, I, you know, and so I will report back to you next week, let you know how it goes. Um, we will, of course, be socially distanced and careful and wear our masks. And we just thought it would be a thing we could do together, get out of the house and also just some self-care. So I hope that you guys really enjoy this week's episode because I felt just by talking to Andrew, I literally felt like I was in therapy. So this whole episode just feels really therapeutic to me. And so I hope that you get something like that when you listen. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Dose of Support. He's been trained with a master's in divinity and has a PhD focusing on practical theology. He's here with experience working with mental health patients, medical surgical patients, and hospice. Here to share stories that he describes as focusing on dignity is chaplain Dr. Andrew Tripp. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It's my pleasure. So we were talking before recording that you work in hospice now, and I work a lot with hospice teams because of my older adults that I work with. They're getting to the end of their life, and it sounds like you've kind of gone through a journey to get to this place where you are. As you know, we've had a chaplain on the show before, and I believe she had a master's in divinity, but tell me a little bit about what made you go towards chaplaincy work a wonderful question. Really was not expecting to end up in healthcare. When I started my master's program, I very much thought I would end up in a parish, just doing parish ministry. And as part of the ordination process, you're required to do an initial unit of CPE, that's clinical pastoral education. 
-hmm. Each unit is 400 supervised clinical hours in addition to, you know, weekly group supervision and individual supervision where you're doing ministry in a clinical setting. Specifically, mine was in a med surge hospital. I was doing that in between a two years of a two-year-long church internship, have your 11 weeks of 40 hours a week of unpaid clinical supervised oh labor. <laughs> um, and it was a lot more meaningful than my work in the church. I was not having to deal with the petty dramas that you get in church communities. Oh there, boy. <laughs> there was so much that was real going on. When a code happens, it doesn't matter who didn't make coffee. It's a life and death situation. And you have people whose emotions are incredibly elevated. And as chaplain, your job is to help bring calm and peace to that setting. Yeah. And so the work was just much more profound. The work felt much more rewarding. I was fairly young at the time. I, I was still in my 20s. It was odd getting the sense of authority that was projected upon me. And I knew that I was doing the right thing. I had this one patient who had been in the ICU and had significant delirium. And the ICU nurses were just like, can you just calm her down? And when I wasn't there, she could work herself up and cause quite a ruckus. But if I would sit with her, just my presence helped get her so she wasn't screaming for the nurses. Mm. Her, you know, her vitals were much more normalized. Her respiration rate would be much more normal instead of elevating. And I developed a relationship with her over the course of a week. And then the next Monday when I come in, I see she's moved to just a regular medical floor. And I was so excited for her. So I swapped with the chaplain who was seeing that floor to be able to go see her. Just Aww. check in, see how she's doing. And when I went into her room, her face lit up and she said, Chaplain, you came back. Aww. And it was so meaningful. But then on the Wednesday of that week, she'd aspirated on her dinner the previous night, had gone back to the ICU. And so as soon as I got in, I was paged there because her adult sons were asking me, is it killing her if they take her off the vent? Because the doctors have said there's really nothing that can be done for her. Hmm. And at that point, I'm still in my 20s. And these men in their 50s are asking me basically for permission to let their mother go. Oh. And that, that they saw that in me was really humbling, but also that I was able to reassure them that being kind to her is taking the path where she'll suffer the least and prolonging suffering isn't a sign of love. And that's where I think hospice was going to be my path, that it was end of life situations where I felt I was doing the most effective work. You'll notice in a hospital setting, who's the person who's responding to the codes? or who's showing up 30 seconds later to see who already showed up so that they don't really have to go. Um, so you find who, you know, who is the person 
that's just naturally gravitating towards this work. And it's probably because that's where their skill set is. That's so interesting that even as a, a, a much younger person that people were looking to you in these times of life and death and that you had good training behind you. Did you have your PhD at this point or no? no? I'm, I was, I had just completed my master's at that point and okay. was about to start my doctorate, you know, the fall after this summer. Um, okay. The reason why I decided for my PhD is I had thoughts of also getting my counseling licensure and you need a second degree in addition to a master's of divinity in my state in order to qualify to be you know a licensed eligible therapist and so okay so that's for like where... cognitive behavioral like marriage counseling and things like that yeah okay all right gotcha but often without that additional degree you're not going to be license eligible so you wouldn't be bill eligible and that gotcha. kind of dovetails to you know, after graduating with the doctorate, I served in hospice for a few years, but then I transitioned to a behavioral med hospital startup, thinking this is where I can then get my supervised hours as a clinician to then go towards light, you know, independent licensure. Right. And my experience in behavioral med taught me I never want to be there again. And, <laughs> I, you know, I... I transitioned back to hospice. It's interesting because I received two different hospice job offers the day that the lockdown was announced in my state wow. for the pandemic. So it was unique to have a few weeks of March's craziness in inpatient behavioral med before returning to hospice. You know, when a shoe fits, a shoe fits, that the return <laughs> yeah. to hospice was wonderful. I mean, it's been profoundly difficult, the bereavement support that you're doing where folks have not been able to be with their loved ones as they've passed. There's so much more anger now than yeah. in other times. Yeah. Sometimes it's a very masculine trait to replace sadness with anger because you know how to be angry. It's harder to be sad. But here, they're they're both you know, yeah. guns blazing, present, for good reason. Tell me about much younger high school age Andrew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and were you, were you like, I'm going to go be a chaplain or I am going oh, no. to go be a pastor. That is going to be my job. I had every intention of being a medical doctor. And then in my first year of undergrad, my oldest brother was in med school at the time, so I spent my spring break with him. I realized if I wanted to be a good person, I could not go to med school. It felt <laughs> like it was junior high all over again, but oh, even yeah. pettier. And so it convinced me, no, you're going a different route. Back then, if you had a degree, it didn't really matter what it was, and you knew computers, you could find some IT work. Mm -hmm. So I did you know, five years of corporate IT work before you know, realizing that seminary was the direction that I was going to go because it felt like I was doing a full-time day job to support my full-time volunteer church work. I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this professionally. 
So you found your passion and you found a way to turn it into a job, which I think mm-hmm. is like the dream. Um, okay. So let's just, what is the very best part of being a chaplain right now? So much of healthcare is very undignifying to patients. Your ICD code is defining you by what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Your, you know, your providers are doing care plans that are really more designed to be compliant with CMS than they are to be supportive of you as a human being. Chaplaincy, because it's not a quote-unquote billable service, I'm able to actually engage with the patient or in hospice, the patient and family as a unit of care to help restore some of that dignity, that they're a person and I can be an advocate for their personhood in a system that at times is not supportive of that person. It, it really dehumanizes the whole experience that someone goes through to assign a code and a, a label and mm-hmm. yeah, and see them for their diagnosis. And I think we're so busy. We're moving on to the next task and we, mm-hmm. and you're right. You have like this gift of time that others don't and you can really bring bring everything into perspective for people let's take a short break and when we come back we'll hear another patient story from chaplain andrew and we'll talk to you guys in a minute Dr. Andrew Tripp, our chaplain that's working in hospice right now. And man, does he have tons of stories. He's already told us a couple stories in this in this episode already. But um, Andrew, have you come up with a, a special story that you really want to get out there? There was a time that the hospice that I worked for previously was affiliated with a Jewish elder care program that there were a few survivors of the Holocaust, who at that point then were seniors and residents at these nursing homes that I would visit as part of the hospice. And I remember this one woman saying to me how all of her friends had died in the camp, how you know she was alone, all of her family was gone, and now she's old. And she said, Doctor, why am I still alive? And it was this powerful moment for me where we often think of life as important at all costs, that outside of hospice, end-of-life care is some of the most expensive care in medicine and is often very futile. Mm -hmm. And here's someone who really did not want to be alive. It's not that she had suicidal ideation. She just appropriately was miserable. And so I wouldn't call it depression. It's more like an adjustment disorder where your situation is just so bleak that if your activities of the day are exercise in your wheelchair, then bingo, then mealtime, then nap, there's not a lot of stimulation to your mind or to your passions. And so it was 
work with her to see what still mattered. Where, where was there still some spark to her? And that's where it felt like what I was doing was magical. I, I'm just stuck on like this whole Holocaust survivor thing for a second. Like, mm-hmm. so like there are very few of those people left and I'm just wondering how survivor's guilt in this particular population played into her. Like, I think a lot of people just have an intrinsic will to live, right? Mm-hmm. We all have this like will to keep going. Cause that's what, that's what you do. You keep plowing through. And it, I, I feel like for someone who had been through so much in her life and she had made it through so much for this to be the thing to make her not have that intrinsic oomph, you know, that you need to keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I'm wondering is like, how did she like, was, was her will to not live because of her dementia and because because being in that situation was so hard or was it survivor's guilt um, or PTSD from from what she had been through? It could be all of it. Like, I suppose, yeah. Right, that all, all of those could be resounding yeses. Really digging down to what the cause behind it would have been nearly impossible because her ability to respond to prompts appropriately wasn't going to be there. Okay. There's several strong emotionally charged memories related to her experience in the camps. And, you know, she discussed some of those with me. I think some way to just unburden herself of those yeah. memories. Yeah. Um, you know, describing eating grass so that way she would feel like her stomach would be full or how they would sleep in a big like dog pile on each other so that way they would be warm because there was just no heat in their bunks. Things like that where she just wanted someone to know so she wouldn't yeah. have to hold on to those memories so tightly. Yeah. Oh. I'm I'm literally like how can there be Holocaust deniers? Like how? It's I I, I know my mind is just like going like a million miles a minute with all sorts of questions and obviously like you couldn't get the answers from her right. <laughs> um, but I just what a powerful and what meaningful work it sounds like you get a lot of fulfillment from oh, the yeah. work that you're doing like I think a lot of people would see people suffering and get like secondary trauma or see death and get that secondary trauma and it sounds like you have a different meaning attached to these situations or however you're coping. Um, it sounds like you find so much fulfillment, like the work that you do really matters. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, on the hard days when it's hard, when it doesn't make sense, when, when you feel like, I don't know if I can go back to this job. I think we all have those days. So what do you do? What are your self-care strategies to get through healthcare? It's a wonderful question. I know one of your self-care techniques is one you've discussed with a, a few of your other guests, which is exercise. I have a four-year-old, and really when he was being born, I was putting on the pregnancy weight with my wife, and then... You're not alone there. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so you know, for a few years, I was really not taking care of my body. So it's been about a year now that I've had a 
brother-in-law gift me a home gym for my 40th birthday so I wouldn't have any excuses to not exercise. And I'm, uh, you know, in the past year, I'm down about 50 pounds. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I mean, look, I'm still morbidly obese if you look at BMIs, but it's, you know, a huge improvement in, if you look at body fat percentages, it's way down. The A1C is way down. So I'm just so much healthier. Honey, if you listen to episode one or episode 21, um, we hate the BMI. Our listeners hate the BMI. It is it is just not an accurate measurement of health. But good for you for making some progress in, in being a healthier and hopefully happier person. And the transition away from behavioral med back to hospice has just done wonders for my overall mental health. That's a really interesting thing to say because I think after this pandemic over is over, we're going to see a lot of professionals leave bedside work and because because it's not the right fit because they're so burnt out and your your example is a really good one for people to think about like maybe just switching a different to a different specialty would be something that would help people um, stay with patients, stay doing the work that they love, but, you know, have a change of scenery and help them recover Mm -hmm. from what they've been going through. Yeah, definitely. Can you explain a little bit about like, so you have this home gym, Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of people have access to a gym or they have equipment at home that they don't use. Like, did you stick to a schedule or what did you do? How did you actually like, like logistically fit it into your life? You work all day, then you come home, even if you're just like immediately change clothes, drive there, however long drive, then change again, you know, shower change, drive back home. Then all of a sudden, instead of being home with your family at five-ish, you're not, it's not, we're talking like seven-ish and that's just, it's enough of a reason not to do it, to just say, I don't have to do it. By having it in my basement, you know, I get home, I make sure my tablet is synced so my documentation is in, get changed workout before making dinner. Um, so if I'm working out between, you know, five and six, then I can, you know, make dinner and I can have some real time with my kid before I have to put him to bed. Yeah. I get my family time in, so I'm not losing family time, um, mm-hmm. but I'm still being responsible for myself. You know, I I pay someone to write out my programming for me so I don't have to think, like, what am I going to do today? It's, you know, it's emailed to me every month in a spreadsheet the five days a week that I lift, like, what I have to do. So that way, I don't even have to think about it. It's just you go and you do what you're told to do. And people don't have to pay for something like that. I mean, there's tons of like, you know, YouTube videos, but it sounds like for you that that kept you organized. So your goal is five days a week of some physical activity. Mm-hmm. Did you change your diet at all? Yes. A year ago when I started, I really, really dropped down my carbs. But as the exercise intensity increased, um, you know, it's kind of like 35% of calories are protein, and then the other 65% gets very day-to-day, 
between my fats and my carbs, but just a lot more cleaner carbs, you know, avoiding the yeah. processed sugar. Uh, shit, I don't, I don't watch any of that. Let me tell you how I, so I'm kind of like a couple years behind you. I have a 20 month old now and he is bananas he does not <laughs> sleep he is so busy whatever I can eat that's what I'm eating like whatever I have in front of me whatever someone else brings me like that is that that is just how we're getting it done but that it sounds like you're really sticking like you you found and like a routine that you can stick to is really what's helping you very much so I was in the trenches with you my son was about 26 months before he slept through the night. You're shitting me. I have six months of this left. May, oh, maybe Lord. not. It was uh, mine. It took him another eight months after that to sleep through the night. That was one of the excuses of why I wasn't going to exercise. Is I was exhausted. I was right. weary. In, right. in, in healthcare, the work's not easy. So you put your time in. You get home and you're wiped, and mm -hmm. you're also probably over caffeinated to cover up the fact that you have a huge sleep deficit. You're not mm -hmm. going to be able to make healthy decisions when you're not sleeping. You have mm -hmm. cravings for really unhealthy foods. You know, now that I'm actually able to get a night's sleep most nights, you know, I don't have that same mid-afternoon need to hit up a snack machine to get a candy bar, <laughs> which was like a daily thing for me when wow. I was not okay. sleeping. Just acknowledging that the work that we do in healthcare is so taxing mentally and physically, emotionally, and then you get home and you're supposed to like do 30 minutes of cardio or whatever, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like when you don't have another ounce of fuel in you, what I've noticed is some people take all those emotions and they like throw it on the pavement or the treadmill or into weightlifting or, you know, so I have noticed that like some people use it as something to like break the, break through that emotion, process that emotion. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that wasn't necessarily how you're using it. When I was in behavioral med and I would have an incident where like, I was assaulted by a patient, when your adrenaline is up and your cortisol is up, having the weights at home so you can burn through those hormones was very helpful. Um, but in hospice, I'm not attacked the way I was in behavioral mm -hmm. med. And so I, I don't have those same kind of stress hormones that I need the weights to help me cope with, but for my own physical well-being and just being a responsible father, I want to be around for my little guy. That mm -hmm. you know, having physical activity is necessary. Kind of like I needed to clean up my eating so that way I can be, you know, I can be around. So making good choices. And setting myself up for success. So doing some prep cooking on Sunday nights. So I have healthy food for me for the week. So that way in hospice. And you know, today I drove 160 miles. Oh my. Patient. If you don't have food and you're driving 160 miles, when you're hungry, you're going to go to fast food. Yeah. <laughs> but if I did the prep cooking and I have, you know, my little to-go box in my passenger seat with me of 
you know, a healthy protein, some cooked veggies. I know I'm going to be making good choices because I already did the work. Oh, I wish I wish I was there. Maybe I'll join you at some point. Um, but really, really awesome self-care routine that you have going five days a week. It's amazing. Um, all right, Andrew, let's say people are like, Andrew is my jam. How how can they connect with you if they have questions about chaplaincy or hospice or the work that you do? Or maybe they just like totally want you to share your workout dates. How can they get a hold of you? They want to email me. It's andrew.s.trip at gmail.com. Probably the easiest way to get in touch. If you want to see some of the workouts, I'm not sure off the top of my head what my Instagram handle is. But I have, you know, I'm not sure either. <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be in the show notes. Um, I'll try to figure that out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you, you know, want a Duffer's advice on powerlifting programming, I will do my best. That's awesome. We've had we've had a couple powerlifters on the show already, um, and one was like a really competitive powerlifter. So that's so funny that it's like this thing amongst healthcare professionals to powerlift. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your chaplain work with me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Vanessa. All right. I will be back in your ears next Wednesday with another dose of support. You can extend a dose of support even further by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, on our website, or by giving us a rating or review. You can always support the show monetarily on patreon.com slash dose of support. Dose of support is written, organized, emailed, edited, produced, published, all the things by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by John Schreier. I'm punching out this week. But I will be back in your ears next week for another dose of support.